0: Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my brother from a pirate mother, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irreverent. I mean, irrelevant. Or do I? In today's episode, we try to respond to a call in question that asks about a lot of things, mostly revolving around the tricky area of measurement invariance testing. We also talk about time machines, quadruple negatives, buying firewood, Digging Up Bodies, The Shots Clock, and Dumpster Fires. Oh, and we have special return visits from Whack-A-Mole and The Poking Stick. We hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: Greg... Tell us why you are so excited.
0: Okay, sure. Um, And we're going to post something about this, but we have a limerick contest coming up. Uh, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, happens to fall on a Quantitudes Day this year. And we thought, what better way to celebrate than to have listener-generated limericks. And again, we'll post some information about that. But quickly, you all can send in your limericks to us in a variety of ways. And then we will pick some to share with our, our listeners.
1: For those of you who may not know, a limerick is a a lyrical poem of a particular structure. It has a rhyming structure of A-A-B-B-A in the five lines of the poem. They are often made up in pubs, often among friends while drinking Guinness, and so keep that in the spirit. They are also a little bit naughty at times. Mm -hmm. We run generally a family-friendly show here. So try to keep them quantitatively oriented. Try to keep them reasonably family-friendly. When you have them, you can get it to us a variety of ways. In honor of the the magnitude of the event, we actually have an email address, limerick at (laughs) quantitudepodcast.org. You can send a text-based email or you can email us a voice memo Uh, that you record on your phone. You can go to our webpage, QuantitudeThePodcast.org. We actually have a little video trailer there where we talk about this and and we do a bit of a pop quiz where Greg gives us a live limerick on the spot. So I highly recommend that. Um, But we have a, a, a portal there where you can submit an email. And then finally, we have a Google voicemail, the numbers at the bottom of the webpage, and uh, you can call and leave a message. We will evaluate the submissions that we get. It's
0: a very rigorous assessment process that we have laid out.
1: (laughs) Very similar to grad admissions. We throw them down the stairs and Mm -hmm. pick up the six that (laughs) hit the bottom. Mm -hmm. On our March 17th episode, we will uh, read the submissions. If you send an audio, uh, we will play those. And then as a teaser, we have a very special, Guest reader, who will help us read the text-based ones on March seventeenth. We do. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to you after the oh, the meeting. Okay. And for those of of you who who managed to get through the holiday episode, it is not jiffy. I promise <laughs> you that it is not jiffy.
0: He's still employed. Don't be. It's okay. He's he's employed.
1: So March third. Five line A A B B A quantitatively themed. We're really excited about this. Oh, and the prizes. Tell us about the prizes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm driving through a oh. tunnel. <laughs> ah,
0: okay, gotcha. I, I'm excited about that. Thank you. All
1: right, today's show, Doctor Hancock, invariance. All right, yeah. So invariance,
0: invariance is a topic that I, I will have a lot of a lot of feelings about. Statistically speaking but I actually just have a preliminary feeling that has to do with the fact that the language around invariance is just awful. Um, It's awful for people who even are accustomed to talking about invariance. It's absolutely difficult for new people. Uh, And I have this thing that I talk about in many of my statistics classes. So a lot of students have heard me say this before, and this isn't about invariance specifically. If I had a time machine I would get in that time machine I would go back to various points in statistical history the time machine would open there would be smoke it would be it would be you know very a lot of mood I would pull off my time travel gloves one finger at a time dramatically I would walk up to the person who invented certain statistical language and I would slap that person with my time travel gloves and then I would put my time travel gloves and I would get back into my uh, into my machine and so, so just I- to
1: clarify <laughs> yes you would do that instead of So, anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, I'll cut that out. I'll just let you know now. (laughs) Keep going. I thought that might work, but, you know. Yeah, I know. All right, give a flat spot and then keep going. I have a bit
0: of a list that that I jotted down of some of the things that annoy me. In a, and, I mean, we already talked about the abysmal language around confidence intervals and, and, and hypothesis testing is awful. I mean, obviously statisticians are not linguists, right? We have, we have no communication ability, no ways to structure a useful lexicon. Um, you know, we, we've joked about how analysis of variance isn't really about variance, analysis of covariance. You never even see a covariance when you do analysis of covariance in measurement There's something called a reliability index, but there's also something called a reliability coefficient. They're not the same thing. Um, Dumb, dumb, dumb. One thing that annoys me is when we're training our intro stat students, we tell them if it's a Greek letter, it's a parameter. If it's a Greek letter, it's a parameter. So we get accustomed to this rhythm and then we get to regression and we go, and we call that a beta weight. You're like, wait, I thought beta weight, right? So I would slap that person who did that. The whole missing data language, is, is terrible. It is terrible. There's missing completely at random, but then there's missing at random, which is not the same as missing completely at random. So if someone says my data are missing at random, do you go, are they really missing at random, or are they missing completely at random? Right. It's a terrible language, and of course, if you if you get into the literature, you understand why those choices were made. But still, it's a terrible language for uh, for communicating. I saw this really cute little this little meme that's that said. M-C-A-R, M-A-R, and then M-I-D-G-A-F. Missing, I don't give a (laughs) (laughs) Which is sort of how I feel about it.
1: Um, So you don't like then failing to reject missing not at random? (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's really the problem, right? That someone says something, and you have to keep it in your rehearsal buffer over and over and over until you decipher what it means. One of the worst in the in the models that I encounter is that when you have uh, a statistical model that has a feedback loop, for example, so you might have mm-hmm. a theory which is a super problematic theory temporally, um, but if you have a model that says. Uh, X influences Y and while Y influences X, right? There's a huge temporal problem with that. When they go back and forth like that, we call that non-recursive. And you're like, what? <laughs>
1: what time travel gloves off (laughs) uh
0: back into the machine Um,
1: i teach as recursive models move left to right with no feedback loops and i actually in my class say the mnemonic is it's the opposite of what you would think it is
0: that's exactly how you have to remember it use common sense and then undo that uh, and that's how you'll remember it. I mean, I explain why it came to be named like that, but still, it's just dumb. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you have any you have any pets along those lines?
1: So I will cough up an approximation of one of my favorite sentences, mm-hmm. uh, and it comes out of the power testing using the RMSEA. Mm-hmm. The probability of incorrectly accepting a false null hypothesis of not close fit. <laughs> not real. (laughs) So back into it, right? Uh We can solve it by recursion, Uh right? So
0: did you have any others or should we, should we talk about invariance?
1: So we didn't say at the outset that how we got the idea for the invariance episode is uh, we had a listener call in. Mm -hmm. We really appreciate it when you do that. Send in a note, you know, send in a voice memo. It gives us ideas for shows. It proves to my mom that people are listening, which is Mm -hmm. pretty exciting to me. So, what we're going to do is let's jump and listen to the call, and then we'll just talk about it a little bit. How
2: does that sound? Sounds good. Thank you. Hi, my name is Chris Schatzneider, and I'm a professor of psychology at Florida State University, and I am also an associate director of the Florida Center for Reading Research. I study how kids learn to read, and I am also a methodologist, which I believe is defined as anyone who calls himself a methodologist, and people believe them. Anyway, my postdoc, Will, and I have been working on combining eight separate data sets that each look at early reading development. We're attempting to use some traditional measurement and variance modeling, but became concerned over using p-values to inform us about whether parameters can be constrained or freed with so many kids we are detecting what we would consider to be trivial differences in parameters we've begun to look at some effect size indices to see if those might be a better guide and our goal is to make sure that these factors are put on the same scale we like to say the devil is in the details and we believe the devil is definitely present in this one any thoughts or comments would be greatly appreciated
1: so there is a lot of interesting stuff in that voice message. Um, there is <laughs> measurement invariant scoring, excessive power, effect size estimate, Satan.
2: Yeah.
1: I <laughs> Satan's all ever- of these. <laughs> right. There's a, a theological component to this that I did not anticipate. But there really are three or four episodes of potential material in this. Combining eight data sets puts you in an integrative data analysis kind of framework. Excessive power makes you start thinking about standardized effect size measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, scoring and putting things on, on the same scale uh, uh, moves us into you know that direction of scale scoring or factor scoring. If I reach my hand into the bag of cats and pull mm-hmm. one out... Mm-hmm. Maybe the one to start talking about is, he says, traditional invariance. Yeah. And maybe that's just a good place to start.
0: I think so. And I, I think it means we can only disappoint shots in our,
1: <laughs> in our response. Wait, shots? Is that... Uh, I believe that's what the cool kids call him. Okay, so you can call him that and I will not. Oh, you're cool-ish.
0: So, um, yeah, so let's focus on traditional invariance, but... Would it be okay with you if I just sort of tried to contextualize that to try and get as many people uh, psyched about this as we are every single day? Go for it. All right. Uh, so what I'm thinking about requires me, first of all, to, to pull some information from you that you did before. You, you had used this really nice example of items that you had on, I think it was a depression scale. And I don't know if you remember those, but the, the key was that they were very disparate. Do you remember that?
1: I do. I don't remember the exact items I used in the example, but I uh, uh, can recreate them because it's a very common kind of thing that we encounter. Uh, So we have a multiple item scale that evaluates individual differences in depression. And one item might be, I sometimes feel lonely even in the presence of others. Another item might be, Um, I don't derive as much enjoyment out of activities that I used to. Uh, and then the third one is I often fantasize about taking my own life.
0: Wow. Yeah. Very, very different. And I would say, imagine we have a scale with, um, with more than just those three items, but they cover a lot of ground. And now I'm going to try to explain to my grandmother, uh, what we mean by invariance, um, I'll avoid the Hungarian accent as much as po- as much as possible, <laughs> Gregory.
1: All right, that was. <laughs> <laughs> what is depression? You couldn't help yourself, could you? I, you said I you could, were going to avoid it, and then you did it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, Sorry, I, sir. I, oh, ooh, <laughs>
1: have you been working on your
0: jiffy? No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. Um, here we go. So I want to do a. A study across cultures. And it doesn't have to be cultures. It could be, it could be genders. It could be ethnic groups. It could be lots of different things that we use to describe groups that we might be interested in comparing. Imagine I'm interested in comparing the amount of depression that people have in these different cultures. Maybe that's my end goal. I don't know if it is, but maybe that's my end goal. But in order for me to be able to make that comparison, when I say depression. I have to mean the same thing in the different cultures. And in order to be able to have confidence that I'm saying the same thing, then I have to know that the recipe that I am using to combine the information that I have from those items that you described, um, the recipe has to be the same, I think, or at least that's worthy of a conversation. It has to be a recipe that gives me something, A, that I'm comfortable in calling depression and that, B, I am comfortable making comparisons of groups in terms of depression. And if I think about all the scale items that you described, let's imagine there's seven point Likert scale items and uh, and that there's a whole mess of them. And I believe I just saved a kitten's life. You did. Am I right? Okay. And if that
1: makes no sense to you, listener, you need to go back and listen to prior episodes. (laughs) Okay. Um,
0: So let's just say for simplicity, and this is really important because otherwise it's a huge can of worms, that I just add all of these items together. I add their Likert scales together and I get some total score that is meant to represent depression. So now I have scores for people uh, on depression. The key is that... If depression is a little bit different in different cultures, um, if depression doesn't mean the same thing, for example, or if different things are indicators of depression in those cultures, it starts to get more uncomfortable to say, oh, this culture has more depression. If we can not at least start with a premise that what we hold in our hands uh, means the same thing across those cultures. Here's what I mean that they mean the same thing. Let's think about there is an underlying construct called depression. We call it a factor or a construct or a latent variable. It goes by a whole bunch of different names. And let's imagine that it defines, and we, we talk about things like this in a variety of episodes, and it sort of undergirds our world in many ways, you and I. Um, a factor is like a continuum. It's a, for, for our purposes right now, anyway, it's like a continuum that you can't see. And what we would like to know is that if that continuum represents depression, that if someone is standing at a place along that continuum, meaning they have a certain degree of depression, that that would manifest itself in the same profile of scores in one culture as it would in another. And if it's the case that one of those items really doesn't doesn't tell you about depression in our culture, you know whether it's around whatever the examples that you have, or insomnia, or whatever these things are that might be symptoms of depression... If it's the case that, yeah, you know, in our culture, depression doesn't really manifest itself that way. Then I have some concerns that when you aggregate those items in one culture, you have something that's maybe not quite as much depression or it's got a little bit more noise in it. So for starters, I would like to say that one of the keys to, to this whole conversation of invariance is that there is a theoretical continuum, it represents a latent variable, and we would like as one of our initial conditions that where you are along that continuum would manifest itself in the same amount uh, of each of the measured variables irrespective of which culture you're in. Is that, is that an okay place to start or do you want to already tweak me a little bit?
1: Nope, I like that immensely. It makes me think of a interaction I had with a research group a few years back, just another mm-hmm. example, uh, looking at anxiety in children across these discrete groups that they were studying. And there was an item that said, your child is anxious before going to school. Mm-hmm. Well, what was interesting is they did some focus groups afterwards and found out that some parents were interpreting it anxious as nervous or fearful before going to school, but other parents were interpreting it as excited and wanting to go. So are they anxious before Mm -hmm. going to school? Yeah, they can't wait to get Mm -hmm. to school. They're anxious for that.
0: What was that scale trying to get at? Do you remember?
1: Anxiety. And so the item was generated for kind of classic anxiety of nervousness, fearfulness. So it was inadvertent. That the item anxious was written. Nobody thought that it this other use of mm-hmm. the word that might be systematically related to different subgroups in the sample.
0: What that would mean is if you were using an aggregate of those items, it's you know, maybe it's contributing to informing you about actual anxiety in one of these subgroups, but it's actually meaning something else in one of these other subgroups. So when you right. when you put them into this amalgam, it starts to call into question whether or not the thing you hold in your hand that you intend to be anxiety is really the same thing across groups. Imagine you were studying anxiety in uh, in kids in traditional education settings and kids who are homeschooled, just to be a very dramatic example. Then that item would be a very odd item just out of the gate, right? Because these kids aren't going to school per se. They're going to some. Different environment, some home environment. And so the item itself is even kind of wacky for that particular culture.
1: When I think about this stuff myself, it really does go back to like fourth grade. So remember you have the Mm -hmm. number line and you have the little bouncing ball (laughs) where you go one (laughs) unit and two units. And my Uh math skills never went much beyond Uh that. But there are two issues at hand, as you're alluding to now for two groups, whatever (laughs) they may be, just say group A and group B. Does residing at a five, does that reflect the same amount of what you're studying? Are there five units of whatever? And if you're in group A and have a five and you're in group B and have a five, are those the same or not? And then you can move a unit on that scale. So moving from five to six, you can ask, is that the same amount in group A and group B? (laughs) And those two obviously are intimately related, but those are different questions.
0: I'm with you. I, I like it. Yeah, the whole notion of a latent variable as this continuum is a is is a slippery one for a lot of people. Um, whether it's depression or anxiety, but that's that's sort of at the root of everything that we're talking about. There is some continuum. We can we agree that there is some continuum. We just don't have access to it. We can't pop open people's heads and see. Oh, look how much depression or look how much anxiety. So we have to use. Um, observable manifestations, whether it's in the form of symptoms that we measure medically or questions we ask people, and what right now we're talking about a typical thing, which is asking people a series of questions. One of the points of this thing called invariance is that you would like to believe, just as you described, that if someone moves along that latent continuum, whether there's some increase in depression or decrease in anxiety, whatever that continuum represents that that is reflected as a comparable change across the groups and the items. And that has to do with how the underlying construct and the variables are linked. And those are what we call loadings. And those people who've done factor analysis would be familiar with, with those loadings. So we often start off with an assumption anyway that those are the same across groups. We, or maybe we hope they're the same across groups. And the language that we use is that those loadings are invariant. And so if they're not the same across groups, it would make sense to say that they're variant, but that's not what we say, right? <laughs> no, we say they're not.
1: That would defa- make too no. much sense.
0: That's exactly what they would expect us to do. Um, that's right. So we have, we have to call them non-invariant. If if these loading relations differ across groups, cultures, whatever, then we say that they're non-invariant. And oh boy, this is really going to be where the fun begins. Um, but one one other point of invariance that I will... That I want to talk about, and you may wish to flesh it out before we start talking about how the heck we diagnose this darn thing, if we can diagnose this darn thing, uh, is that we also have the assumption that if you fall in a particular location along that continuum, so not talking about movement along that continuum per se, but if you fall in a particular place on the continuum, like, you know, a five or whatever you were saying, um, and someone in one group is on that place, and then someone in another group is on the exact same place then we would like that to give rise to same amounts of the measured variables that we have. And, you know, the, a loose way of saying that is that the variable doesn't contain a little extra something in one group or lack a little something in, uh, in one group. And the example, you know, whether it's the example that had to do with anxiety before school or whatever, there might be some additive change, which is what I'm talking about right now, or there might simply be some relationship difference across groups. So we're going to talk about invariance that reflects change in the latent variable. That will manifest itself in what we call the loadings. And we'll also talk about differences across groups potentially in location uh, above and beyond the latent variable, and that will revolve around what we call intercepts. There's a lot more to invariance. These models get big. We can talk about invariance of factor variances and covariances and, and all of that But for the most part, I think about it in terms of loadings and intercepts. Do you you tend to fold more into that or is that a good base place to be?
1: That's kind of location and scale is sometimes the terms you you encounter. Um, I have a really dumb example of this that I encountered Uh in the fall. It made me laugh out loud when I was on the phone and the woman who I was talking to didn't know why I was laughing out loud. I buy firewood Mm -hmm. every year. All right. So stick with me. I'm going somewhere with this. Many of my stories, I'm not. And I'm this one, I actually have okay. an endpoint. I was calling around town to get the best deal on firewood. All right. So I'm in North Carolina. I love the fall. I have a wood burning fireplace at home. For those of you who bought firewood in the past, you know that you buy it by the cord and there's a half cord and a face cord and a full cord. All right. And so I called a couple of different places and I said, how much does a cord of wood cost? And they said, you know, $230, $220. And I called the place that I really wanted to buy from because they have, they have great wood I've bought mm-hmm. it in the past, they sell it in bucketfuls. The, they have a a, a scooper, uh-huh. and it was $280 for a bucketful. Uh-huh. And I said, how does that relate to cords? And she said, oh, honey, we don't measure in cords. We measure in a bucketful. And you could buy a half bucketful or a full bucketful. <laughs> I laughed out loud on the phone because I thought about this uh-huh. stuff. Is it a five in group A? Is it a five in group B? And do you know if it's the same amount and the same thing? But I had $220 for a cord <laughs> in group A and $280 for a bucketful in group B. And I had no way yeah. <laughs> of making a judgment. A very dumb example, but similar to what we're saying, right? Is depression being assessed in the same way across the group? And is a value of five represent the same amount of that underlying construct? So yes, I am completely on board with your description of it.
0: So we need to talk about what the heck we, how do we, how do we test this? And Hmm. I will Get out of the way a little bit of some of my my anxiety around the language of invariance assessment, because people talk about this in so many different ways. And if you go through the invariance testing literature, you will see. And I, I, I'm going to try and barf up just a bunch of examples. You will see people talk about. St- strong invariance strict invariance weak invariance configural invariance partial invariance metric invariance scalar invariance yeah what did i miss you got them (laughs) all i think and uh
1: maybe invariance (laughs) invariance
0: super double secret invariance um so, it, so there really is this, you know, like you need Google Translate to try and figure out what the heck someone is doing unless you're just really all in on, on you know, in this area. And so I will primarily uh, focus on the loadings and the intercepts. And I don't know if you want to add into the mix other parameters that you think are critical to this conversation or not.
1: I don't, there are other parameters that come involved in, in more complicated Mm -hmm. models, but I, but I think the item intercepts and factor loadings are an ideal place to start. And then just as a final point, before you move into, to where you're headed is, you know, again, thinking about why is this so Mm -hmm. important? So I recently reviewed a paper and they were looking at gender differences in depression pre and post puberty. All right. So very interesting Mm -hmm. question. You know, there's some literature to suggest that there are not gender differences in depression pre-puberty, but there are gender differences post-puberty. So you have pre- and post-puberty, and you have boys and you have girls. The paper was very well done and a pretty traditional way of examining that with ANOVAs and regressions and things like that. But at no point did they establish that depression was evaluated equivalently in boys and girls— pre prepubertally and postpuberly. All right. And so what you find, again, in, in just some some of the literature, is that's not my area of expertise, but post-puberty, boys tend to start expressing depression more as aggression than as traditional kind of depressed affect. But they never presented any information to demonstrate that their scale assess depression in the same way. And so when you're asking yourself and and listening to this and thinking about the who cares element, like why do I care? This is fundamental to what we do. This is a critical issue. You have to in some way establish that you have the same ruler that you're using for boys and for girls and pre-puberty and post-puberty. And until you establish that to then compare the groups... You've not made a sufficient argument to say that it's a valid and reliable way of assessing. So it's just my little diatribe on, you know, this isn't little dotting an I and crossing a T to get the psychometric person off your back. This is you have to establish that you're working with the same ruler or the same scale before you move into these incredibly important Absolutely. comparisons. We just
0: sort of assume it. And, and sometimes that assumption is, is reasonable, you know, maybe even most of the time it's reasonable. I I don't know, but when you just use a word like depression or anxiety or toxic masculinity or whatever else you might be interested in trying to measure, you're, you are assuming that it means the same thing. And if that is not the case, then it, it rattles all the foundations, right? So just know that, that, that's, uh, that that's always underneath,
1: So the point is, is we are highly motivated to consider these issues. We have a vested interest as individual scientists to establish these validity and reliability constructs within our Mm -hmm. measures so that we can say, on average, girls report a significantly higher level of depression than boys post-puberty, but not before Mm -hmm. puberty You have to do due diligence before you can make that statement. So Greg, move into then, we now know what Mm -hmm. we're dealing with. We've got a latent factor of depression that we believe Mm -hmm. to exist. We have a set of items that we observed. Our goal is to use information on what we did observe to make an inference about what we didn't Mm -hmm. observe. And we need to evaluate, is that inference of moving, linking the items to the latent variables comparable across group, how do we go about doing Mm -hmm. that?
0: Well, there are standard approaches to doing, to trying to do it, and we can go through some of those standard approaches. But when we're done talking about the standard approaches, I will, I'm going to grumble a little bit about it. Is that, would you like me just to outline a a somewhat, a somewhat typical process? Um, and, And to be honest, this might not be the process that you go through, but I would... So let's imagine we have two groups just for simplicity. And let's, uh, I, I tend to think about this in a sequential fashion. So, for example, I might first think about assessing whether or not the loadings appear to be invariant or non invariant across groups. A very typical way to do that would be to, for starters, just let the intercepts be free across groups. So they're not whack-a-moling our ability to, to assess the, uh, the loadings. And a typical way would be to constrain the loadings to be equal across groups. And I'll, I'll, I'll refine that in just a second and see how much badness of fit that introduces. And there are different ways to see how much badness of fit um, that introduces. But to be very clear, that means picking an item that I will scale the factor with. And that's usually done by setting the loading equal to one constraining all of the remaining remaining items to have loadings that are equal across groups, and then assessing the fit of that model. Um, So that's, that's my starting point, I'm going to enter into this uh, in some way trying to assess the fit of the inner of the loadings across groups. Is that an okay place to start? Or do you want to
1: It is, I will predate it with one minor thing that I do in my own work. And that is Bill Meredith is like, you know, one of the most important contributors, William Meredith. He uh, unfortunately passed away a number of years ago, but he was just a titan in the field and a remarkable guy. But using Bill Meredith's perspectives on this, the place I start with is sometimes called configural invariance. And you alluded to this earlier. And this is just, just to clarify, is... Is the general structure of the factor model the same across the two groups? So if it's two factors in one group, is it two factors in the other? Now, that's a moot point because what we've been talking about here is just a single factor. And so that's totally cool. And again, this isn't an hour discussion of how test invariants, it's more kind of a 30,000-foot view of it, but there are ways of examining configural mm-hmm. invariants. We decide there's a single latent variable, and then I agree with how you do that is you pick an indicator variable and set uh, uh, the factor loadings to be equal, and then in some way evaluate, is there a decrement in model fit? Because of that, those equality yeah. constraints. So,
0: so let let me ask you how you think about it from this point. Do you tend to think about it from the perspective of I have imposed all these constraints, and I could do sort of an omnibus test of a model with and without those constraints? Do you think about it in terms of modification indices helping you to back out of those constraints? How do you how do you think about it in practice?
1: Yes. So think about a single factor. We'll just make up numbers. We have 10 (laughs) indicators and one latent variable. If we estimate that in a single group, a pooled group analysis, so let's use just because it's a, you know, we're kind of following this along, boys and girls (laughs) on depression, and you estimate a single model, you're assuming there's one factor loading matrix that holds for all kids in the sample. On any subgroup. So there's a factor loading matrix for girls. There's a factor loading matrix for boys. And in a single group, we're forcing them to be equal. All right. They have to be equal. What we're doing here is we're giving them the opportunity to be a different value. So now we're going to have a factor loading matrix that are unique to girls, a factor loading matrix that are unique to boys. And we're going to get some omnibus model fit. Right, So that's a whole nother show that we'll have in some time in the future of how do you evaluate model fit. But you estimate that model where you allow them to be free in each group. Then as Greg just described, we're going to equate them and we're going to force them to be equal. And the omnibus test is, have we done harm in our ability to reproduce the data that we observed? Is there a significant decrement in model fit? So when I do this myself... I do look at that omnibus test, the likelihood ratio test. When I impose equality constraints across the entire model, excuse me, across the the factor loading matrix, does that fit significantly worse than when I allow them to be free? If it does not, that implies that the same matrix holds across the two groups. If there is a significant decrement, that means that, and here's what Greg was alluding to with the modification indices, if the model tells you that fit is significantly worse when you make them be equal, all that says is at least one loading is significantly different across the two groups. It doesn't mean they're all different. It means at least one is. Well, here's the problem. Well, which one? How do you know? Right? Because you get this wonderful thing called partial invariance. Right? Which is, all right, the simple question is, all loadings are equal or all loadings are different. The reality, right, everything, everything in life is somewhere in the middle, is some loadings are probably equal or maybe equal. Some loadings are different. Well, then you turn to modification indices. We had an earlier episode on this. And remember, the one thing we've learned in this podcast among maybe two or three things total um, is respect whack When we have them all equal and that's rejected, it is very challenging then to go in and say, well, which ones are equal or not equal? And that's often where you turn to modification indices, which we've talked about before is like a very sharp, rusty knife. You know you shouldn't play with it, but you can't help yourself. Those are modification Mm -hmm. indices. What I do, Greg, is I do the LRT. If I reject that and find that not all loadings are equal, I do carefully go to modification indices. And what those give you in this case is, if you were to free these two loadings, what would the improvement in fit be? And you kind of go through and try to find a subset of loadings Mm -hmm. that want to be different while retaining the ones that want to be Mm -hmm. equal.
0: So I think you describe what is a fairly standard procedure and it is not an infallible procedure at all um, and that's that's not a criticism of you that's just this is very hard this is very hard and I will actually make the case impossible but it's very hard to nail stuff down here and uh, the first issue is about, the issue, the error control, right? When you use that omnibus test, and I'm not against omnibus tests at all. My experience with people is that some will focus, some will use the omnibus test as a gateway to allow themselves to examine modification indices. And some people will never do the omnibus tests. And I find that sometimes it's because people have different motivations, um, (laughs) whether it's around publication or, or whatever, The omnibus test can be a very dull instrument when you have, let's imagine you have a 15-item scale, and there's one item that is dysfunctional across groups, but you have 14 items that are functioning really as invariant across groups. It can be very difficult for that omnibus test to be sensitive to that one because it's so darn happy with the other 14. If I am someone who really wants to champion an instrument as being able to be used across all different cultures and all that, then I'm pretty darn happy with that omnibus test, right? I'm like, sweet, it works. Let's go publish. Um, but if I am a testing company who is worried about an id, who's worried about each individual item and the potential for that item introducing what we'll loosely call bias um, into any subsequent scores or whatever, then my motivation is actually to clean house of anything. Anything that just has a whiff of functioning differently across groups. Um, So I find people enter into this. Some enter into it at the omnibus level, and some enter into it at the individual loading constraint level. Um, And and I don't know if you've experienced people coming at it from different ends.
1: Well, and I've come at it from different ends, because something we haven't given kind of due respect Mm -hmm. to are the parallels this has with diff and impact testing and item response Mm -hmm. theory model, right? This goes back three decades. Uh, You know, they're very close parallels between the IRT and the CFA. Important differences, important similarities, but differential item functioning and impact are exactly the same thing that Greg and I've been talking about in terms of, you know, factor loading and item intercept invariance or Mm non-invariance. I see it pro and con because there's a, a flip edge to the sword of what you're describing where a Mm non-significant LRT can cloak one or two items that want to be different, but they're being outvoted by Mm -hmm. all the rest. Sometimes the opposite happens. And that actually in my neck of the woods, I'm more worried that that omnibus LRT is excessively Mm -hmm. powered. And that is, you know, I I learned multivariate from Leona Aiken at Arizona State, and she had this wonderful description of drips and drabs. Mm of just little differences that, you know, imagine the factor loading matrices for boys and girls are a little bit different on each loading. But when you force them all to be equal, you get this huge Mm -hmm. LRT. But it's because of these uninteresting, trivial things. You know, my response to that is, yeah, tough (laughs) crap. It's something we have to deal with. We've got omnibus tests, we have individual tests, and somehow we have to, in a principled way, balance our use of those to come to some conclusion about the characteristics of the data that helps us sleep mm-hmm. at night.
0: Um, I'm going to ch- try and channel you a little bit and be a bit provocative here. Uh, I-, I know. We'll see how it goes. Um, All right. If you, hmm, you know, when you use, when you use the, uh, the modification indices, you, you imagine you have two modification indices that are just glaring Right there, there's glaring, and you say, ah, well, those are two loadings that are, or two pairs of loadings that are really unhappy being constrained, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll release both of those constraints, and in the end conclude non-invariance for those items. Um, but what you might also find is that if you do it sequentially, you release one of those, then you rerun the model, and then that that loading constraint that seemed unhappy as measured by the modification index is no longer bubbling up. You're like, whack-a-mole. That's right. And so you go, oh, oh, whew, that's that's good news because I, I got rid of that one and everything's fine. But imagine you had released the other, right? You release the other and you say, oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. That's the non-invariant loading. Uh, let, me, let me release that constraint, rerun the model, go back, and you go, whoa, 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 where'd the other one go? That's gone, right? And again, the answer is whack-a-mole. So it, it really calls into question, your ability to, to nail down what this, I mean, you you might have a sense that there is some non-invariance here somewhere, but it is really tricky to try to identify where it is. And, you know, obviously the problem with the multiple constraint approach and using modification indices is that once you have imposed some constraints in the model, then the assessment of each of those modification indices is conditioned upon the the those constraints being in place. But once you put constraints in place that are bad, that compromises every other test around it. So I have a fundamental problem, and I'm not saying that I can solve that problem, but I have a fundamental problem with using modification indices to back out of constraints, because once you put a bad constraint in there, then it makes it really hard to try to figure out who the culprit is, right?
1: Yep, and I couldn't agree more. And in our recent work, because we actually do quite a bit of this work in in my research group in multiple group factor analysis, Mm -hmm. uh, it's integrative data analysis. We combine multiple samples. We have different items. So it's going back to Mm -hmm. shots question, you know, is it's very similar to the kind of thing that he's working with. We have turned more to the IRT kind of approach. And again, there there are many, many different ways of doing this. And so if you're driving in traffic and you're yelling at the radio of, come on, guys, what about this? It's, yeah, we, we know. This is not an exhaustive and comprehensive uh, summary of existing techniques. But one way of being uh, motivated by IRT approach is you freely estimate all of the loadings and then you do one item at a time and so you go about it the other way instead of equating all of them Mm -hmm. and then looking at which ones want to be free you do item one you do often you'll do diff right differential item functioning loading and intercept and you could argue about do you want to chain those or not but we'll leave that alone is you do it for item one and do an LRT. Then you release it and do item two and release it and do item three. And then you keep track, right? Science progresses by highlighters, yellow stickies, and mm-hmm. pencils. And you keep track on a yellow sticky of which one is significant, which is non-significant. And then what you can do is if you find four items, there's not a significant LRT uh, and six items there is, then you put the four in that are equal, the six that are not, and then that's your model. But there are a ton of problems with that too, is first you have alpha inflation out the wazoo. Mm -hmm. So do you do some kind of correction for multiple tests? But something that we haven't talked about is all of this is predicated on you have the right scaling indicator to begin with. And
0: that's where the whole house of cards comes crashing down, I think. I think. And that the IRT approach you described is not immune to that.
1: That's exactly right.
0: So if maybe maybe, uh, elaborating on that a little bit in the context of the original example that we had... We we have to put some constraint in place to be able to make uh, make our factor have units. And a typical way, as we described earlier, is to set a loading to one. And setting a loading equal to one across both groups is not something that's testable. It is fundamentally untestable. But it assumes that change in the factor precipitates the same amount of change in the measured variable in those two groups. It is one unit. Um, and then. Every other loading comparison that we do across groups is given the assumption that that scaling is proper. And if that scaling is improper, then we could reach completely inaccurate conclusions regarding invariance for all the other items. And some people have suggested, well, so here's what you do. Then you click over to the next item and you say, let's use item two then and see if we get the same results. Then let's go through the process. And then let's use item three. And then let's use item four. And so you keep chasing around and see if you keep coming up with the same usual suspects, right? When you do this, but there's a problem with that too. And imagine a scenario, and this might be an unlikely scenario, but imagine a scenario in which in one group, the loadings are just stronger. That's it. And, and let's be let me be very concrete. in one group, these variables are like 0.8 loadings. And in another group they are 0.6 loadings. So the truth is that the variables do not function the same way. When I go to that first loading and I fix it to one in both groups because I don't know any different. you know God didn't tell me that they're non-invariant, then all of the other, loadings align because they have now been moved to be non-invariant. Invariant. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Boom! Drink!
2: <laughs> Drink,
0: everybody! Um, right. So, but and if I use that chasing your tail kind of procedure where, you know, so now I pick and I find nothing is uh, no, no loading constraints are problematic when I do that. And so then I move to the second indicator, same thing, third indicator, same thing. I'm never going to find this problem. It just keeps moving around. So for that reason, I would say technically, not always not necessarily in practice, but technically it is impossible to nail down what is non-invariant. It's also the case, and we ha- we didn't mention this exactly, but I think it starts to become relevant in the IRT world in particular. Um, we didn't mention the role that the factor variance plays in all of this. Right. And the factor variance is this shock absorber. You know, if I did this approach where I said, I am going to fix the factor variance to one, in each group, and now I'm going to test each pair of loadings individually. That sounds spectacular, except for the initial assumption that the variance on the latent variable is actually homogeneous across populations, which becomes fundamentally untestable. That would be like saying that How diverse boys and girls are in depression is exactly the same, or how diverse different cultures are in anxiety is exactly the same. And it's not just setting something to one. It's setting something to one in multiple groups. And once you do that, you are starting with the assumption that things are, the untestable assumption that things are invariant. And my understanding of the item response theory world, when you go through and you test each thing is... Every one of those tests, though, has to be contingent upon some form of scaling, and it has to be some untestable form of scaling.
1: That's right. I mean, there's no there are no big differences in moving from IRT to CFA, and in some way that each tradition is magically able to do what the other one right. cannot. Now, somewhere out there is an IRT person in traffic yelling at at the radio which is what is often done in a multiple group IRT is you standardize the latent factors in one group to have a mean of zero and a variance of one, and you freely estimate the mean and the variance in the second group, and then you equate the loading and the item intercept for the first item or whatever item to set it. But all you've done is in the dark of night is dug up the body from the front mm-hmm. yard, dragged it around the side of the house and buried it in the backyard. The cops are still going <laughs> to find it. All you're doing is moving the body is somehow you have to put a thumbtack into that equivalence, right? And and that's the core of Schott's question is on the same mm-hmm. scale, right? That's what he said is on the same scale. And that's That's everything that that we're talking about here. Now, I'm looking at the shot clock. We're getting deep into the program. Mm -hmm. Let me move into the pragmatic aspect. I completely agree with you in a 30,000-foot idealistic kind of way. I do think Mm -hmm. that it's impossible to discover the truth as God Mm -hmm. sees it. Because the cards that we have been dealt in our hand, we have to play those. And we will never know what really is the invariant item that we can anchor everything else around. But that doesn't mean that we can't approximate it or get a good guess at it. Or you and I both work at state universities close enough for government work, right? And so if you think about what are the options at hand, we can... Rock back and forth and say depression is the same for boys and girls, depression is the same for boys and girls, and just add up the items, divide by 10, and do a T-test. In your opinion, can we do better than that while realizing we're very unlikely to get the true model that sails the seas over the horizon that we believe to exist but can never directly observe?
0: So your question is, do I think there's a good enough?
1: My question is, so what? Do we give up? Right. Yeah. Because that's never acceptable to me to say, oh, that's really hard. We can't do it. Yep. So what? So what do we do?
0: Um, So I think... I was having a conversation with someone who had been at, uh, at ETS educational testing service, and they were going through this process, which as you said is, you know, called differential item functioning among other things. And the goal really is to try to weed out items that are going to be bad. um, When you get insurance, very, very high motivation to do that. And, uh, and what he said was we literally go around the room and vote on which item we want to be the anchor item, right? Which item we think there is no reason on God's green earth should be functioning differently across groups. And once we agree on that, everything else proceeds from there. And, and I don't think we can do better than that, honestly. Um, we can do the chasing our tail thing of trying different things and all of that, which, you know, technically isn't going to work. So I think like everything else, you make your assumption clear from the start. My assumption is that this item um, should not be functioning differently and maybe if we're talking about uh, depression pre and post Uh, puberty or across males and females. Maybe I have a pretty good theoretical argument that this biological marker, for example, shouldn't really be functioning differently as an indicator. But I make that case up front and then I proceed from there. I just don't see that there's anything as a scientist that we can do more than making our assumptions plain up front and then proceeding in good faith from there. And can someone poke at our assumptions? Absolutely. But that's, you know, that's pretty much always going to be the case. Now, We'll talk about whether or not all this matters on the back end, but how do you feel about what I just said?
1: I completely agree. There are two things at hand. One is theory, mm-hmm. right? And that's what you're saying, is, is is what do we have? You know, we have decades of theory. We have decades of prior empirical mm-hmm. findings. Um, and you know, it's kind of bellying up to the bar and saying, this is what I believe. And, and this is why an unambiguous justification, but it goes back to a very complicated statistical concept we addressed in an earlier episode, which was the poking Mm -hmm. stick. (laughs) And on Twitter, a guy, I'm forgetting his name, posted a a picture on Twitter of him with his poking stick on the beach that I absolutely Mm -hmm. loved. And what I do in my own work is I will make two or three different scale scores that invoke different kinds of uh, restrictions, different kinds of assumptions, repeat the analyses, and see, do I change my discussion section? Would I draw a different kind of theoretical inference based on the empirical results if I assume this kind of invariance or that, or if I start with this as a scaling indicator or that? And it falls under the usual poke and stick, which is... If you do it two or three or four different ways and all of them tell the same story, then it's probably not important. It's not a critical issue. But if you assume invariance and then have partial invariance and you would tell a completely different kind of story... Then the onus of responsibility is on you to figure out. Well, which do you believe? What do you have the greatest confidence in? So that's the addition I would make. As I agree with you completely. The interesting thing, and this is a whole other episode itself. You said a really important thing about the ETS is if they find an invariant item, they discard Non-dirted. it. <laughs> drink, ah! <laughs> drink a non-invariant <laughs> item. Okay, so if they fail to (laughs) incorrectly reject a false non-invariant item, they drop it, right? That's classic SAT, GRE LSAT, right? As you get down to a set of items. Well, we don't have that luxury, right? We don't have 100 items Mm -hmm. that tap into calculus and we're trying to find 30 that are invariant across the groups that we're studying. We have 10 depression items. Unless something is like a bloody gaping wound of a difference across groups, I don't want to discard an item. What I want to do is introduce information into the model that reflects the difference in how that item operates. And then that difference is carried forward in the computation of a score that I would then use for some analyses that we will talk about in a later episode.
0: Couple of responses. One, it was Josh Langfus who had his poking stick uh on.
1: Thank you, Josh. I love that picture. uh, On
0: the beaches of California. Shout out to Josh. Um the second thing is you are saving that item, just allowing it to function differently within the context of your model, and then potentially within the context of a score generating mechanism. Uh I will tell you in a testing environment. People would probably have apoplexy over allowing variables to contribute differently across groups. That feels like voodoo sometimes right. to constituents. And so it's much easier to uh, cut your losses and toss the item. One of the interesting things about the culture of people who do modeling in the social sciences, as we do, and people in the testing world, is that when they have an item that functions differentially across groups, they go, eh, it's a bad item. You know, however they diagnosed it, they go, eh, huh, it's a bad item. In the social science world, when we get an item that functions differently across groups, we start to go, does our factor mean the same thing? You know, people are much quicker to call into question the identity of the factor in our world than they are in an assessment world. And I find that fascinating, right? And a lot of the literature, you will read this in a variety of places that says, unless you have... You know complete invariance or or metric invariant I mean, you know some whatever they're talking about unless you have that, then you should not proceed with this kind of testing or this kind of thing and for me i I don't think the sky is falling when you have non invariant loadings. I think the key is doing your due diligence to try to identify those and model them accordingly but but i've seen many people who think that once you have identified something and you enter into the world of what we call partial invariance that it starts to make you go oh, maybe the factor isn't the factor rather than thinking well maybe the item just is a, you know a crappy item across groups
1: or a third one is understanding that there's a a slightly different psychometric structure that gave rise to the items as a function of groups, Mm -hmm. right? You can argue that there are two broad purposes of factor analysis. One is simply coming to a scientific and theoretical understanding about the underlying latent factor structure that gave rise to the pattern of correlations among Mm -hmm. our items. And so it is an interesting theoretical finding to say, well, on average, girls have higher levels of cries easily than boys as an indicator of depression. Mm-hmm. So their, their gender norms, their you know, parental you know, kind of expectations about boys shouldn't cry, you know, whatever it is, I don't, there's a whole area of literature on that. But it's theoretically mm-hmm. interesting to say that these items operate differently and you can hypothesize about why is that. Right? And so one is what is the underlying psychometric structure, and then the other is what I tend to turn more myself is I want to use that psychometric structure as a calculator to get scale scores so that I can move to my latent curve models or so that I can move to my whatever that I want to do secondary. So it's a way of saying these items operate differently across group. I'm going to take that into account when I compute my scale scores so that when I say there are gender differences in depression post-puberty, that to the extent of the ability that I can make given my design and, and empirical data that I believe those to be true group differences instead of me making an error in how I computed the mm-hmm. scores. And what I really did was showed a significant effect that I didn't incorporate these item differences across the two groups.
0: Yeah. I like that a lot. And, you know, I, I think we have ignored explicitly talking about intercepts and the testing of those but i think all of the themes that we talked about in the context of loadings move down into that part of the model. So I'm okay with us not addressing that specifically. You okay with
1: that? I am and the loadings allow us to talk about moving along the number line and the intercepts then are our entry ticket into talking about how much of that and setting the origin and having a shared origin but I am happy to defer that to a future discussion.
0: Okay. And And I think for this episode it's not the shot clock it's the shots clock. Huh? <laughs> huh?
1: There you go. So I think the shots clock is about up. Uh,
0: So summarizing comments, I would say some of the key things that came out of this are that invariance testing is, is technically an impossible task. However, you can approach it from a sensitivity analysis standpoint and see whether or not those non-invariances have the potential to alter the conclusions that you have. So whether or not the whole non-invariance thing is a big dumpster fire and nobody cares, it's completely contained, or if it's, um, or if it's going to cause you tremendous, uh, tremendous problems from there. And what would you add to that?
1: I would add, don't lose sight that even though we can't do it perfectly, we should do it anyway, Mm -hmm. that I think it's important to evaluate and also realize that there are a whole lot of more recent developments we haven't even talked about for sake of time. So Dan Bauer has developed this moderated nonlinear factor Mm -hmm. analysis that allows Us to shift parameters in the measurement Mm -hmm. model as a function of not only a discrete grouping, but continuous variables. Mm -hmm. And that would be an interesting thing to talk Mm -hmm. about in in a future episode. There's some really interesting work recently done on something called regularization. There's a student at Dan's named Will Belzac, who's here at Carolina, is working on on that where regularization as it goes through an iterative procedure where a penalty is put in the likelihood mm-hmm. and non-important parameters go to mm-hmm. zero. And it is uh, working around this notion of is it there or is it not with the LRT, but it in an iterative way. And so that's very promising. And so just know that there are yes. many recent advances that we haven't talked about, but that this is a really important issue, both theoretically and empirically. And I think Greg and I both strongly encourage people to think about it in their own work. I suspect some unknown but large proportion of findings in the published literature are undermined by failure to examine the issue of invariance across group or over mm-hmm. time. I don't think it's typical for a study to do these kinds of things. They just say the the Hancock measure of toxic masculinity is well-validated and reliable, and we used it here mm-hmm. without doing any of this kind of work. Yeah. That's all I got.
0: All right. Um, I hope that was useful to shots and maybe some other people who are thinking about the assumptions that their measures might rest on, and how you might go about trying to diagnose that, and and how that fits in the larger the larger picture. I think much of what we do could be summarized, or the results are summarized as um, it depends. And I think a lot of the things that we'll talk about uh, in other episodes will get at issues of how do things how do things depend broadly. Um, it's a nice theme for what we do.
1: I literally have nothing to add, so on that note, thank you, everybody. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use, and please leave a review. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We are at QuantitudePod. And visit our website, QuantitudeThePodcast.org, to check out past episodes and other cool stuff. You have been listening to Quantitude. If you rearrange the letters, it spells academic midlife crisis. Quantitude is sponsored by General Electric, who is proud to announce the new Cigna MR753T fMRI scanner, capable of delivering up to 60% enhanced high-resolution anatomical coverage per unit time. Finally, a machine for measuring the complexities of human behavior that is just noticeably better than the lie detector test. By factor analysis, do you remember when that used to be important? and by the American Association for the Testing of Main Effects. I mean, really, isn't it just easier to ask if the treatment and control groups were different? This is most definitely not
2: NPR.